You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Uh, 1871 was an incredibly daunting year for a man named Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford had five children, four daughters, and one son, and at the beginning of 1871, his young son contracted pneumonia, and after a prolonged battle, died. Later on that year, Spafford, whose business was tied up in real estate, experienced the loss of almost every humanly possession he had in the great Chicago fire. He spent the next year and a half reeling and trying to walk with his wife and his four daughters before the Lord, asking him to restore what he had lost. And over the next two years, the Lord slowly did that. In 1873, Horatio Spafford and his family decided that they were going to take a holiday away from the States in England. And so they booked voyage on an ocean liner, but at the last minute, Horatio Spafford needed to stay in the States in order to complete some pressing business matters, so he sent his wife and his four daughters on ahead. Days into the trip, the ocean liner collided with another vessel, a steel vessel, and the ocean liner quickly sank, and over 240 souls perished in the frigid waters. Days after that, Anna Spafford, Horatio's wife, sent a telegram back to Horatio which simply stated, saved, alone, what do I do now? As you can only imagine, Horatio Spafford joined onto the next ocean liner going across the seas to be near his grieving wife. And as he approached the middle of the Atlantic, the captain called him up into his quarters to tell him that they were preparing to sail over the very waters where his four daughters had perished. Spafford, taking a few moments to himself, pulled out his journal and began to write these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, and sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to know, it is well, it is well with my soul. A few years later, the beginnings of that poem and other verses would be transcribed into the song, It is well with my soul. One of the words in that first stanza would be changed from Thou hast taught me to know, to thou hast taught me to say for the sake of rhyme and melody and all other things that musicians like Brett, they know. But the truth of the matter was the Lord hadn't simply taught Horatio Spafford to say, it is well with my soul. 
Somehow, in the midst of unspeakable tragedy, the Lord had taught him to know that it was well with his soul. Advent is a season where we celebrate things like heavenly peace. But what remains is for us to answer the question, how? How could we ever experience heavenly peace in the midst of a world where tragedies like that occur? How could we ever, in the midst of our own dark night of the soul, even contemplate being in the place where we could say to the Lord, it is well with my soul. Isaiah 9 tells us that this true heavenly peace, it doesn't come as a feeling. It doesn't come by circumstance. It tells us that this true heavenly peace is a person. The Prince of Peace. The Messiah and Savior we need. The one who we call Jesus. And so over the next four weeks in this Advent series, we're going to be spending time together casting our eyes on Jesus through this song of Christ that Adam read for us. And we're going to be asking the Lord, show us how Jesus brings us this peace. This morning we are starting with just the first of the verses. Verse 15, Pastor Adam read this and let me read it again. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. Verse 15 establishes for us a doctrine that we call the incarnation. Incarnation is a Latin word that literally means to take on flesh. The Apostle John writes this same thing as he describes for us the coming of Jesus in chapter 1, verse 14. And he says, and the Word became flesh. And He dwelt among us. We have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word that John uses for for flesh in the Greek, it's not a pretty word. it's, it's, It's the broken parts of the body. It's that which is dust that is wasting away. See, Jesus didn't just come and take on skin and bones, but He took on the fullness of humanity. He was subject to the range of human conditions. He was tired. He was hungry. He was frail and sometimes feeble. He was faced with His body wasting away. And even subject to temptation at the hands of the enemy. So how does God in human flesh, how does the incarnation, How does this big theological truth land in our life in a way that leads us to peace? 
But Paul gives us three phrases or pictures to point us to the gift that the incarnation is in bringing us peace. He tells us that in the coming of Jesus, we have one, clarity. Two, companionship. And three, compassion. In the coming of Jesus, God in human flesh, we have gifts of clarity, companionship, and compassion that lead us to peace. Let's start with clarity. Early on in uh, the adulthood of my Christian life, I read a book by a theologian named R.C. Sproul. The book was called The Holiness of God. And the book, in, 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 in utterly stark words and phrases and pictures, contrasted the holiness of our God with everything else under the sun. Now, when most of us think of the word holiness, perhaps we think of the, the, the goodness of God, the rightness of God, the correctness of God, the perfection of God, the freedom of God from sin. And while it certainly paints that picture, at its core, the word holy means other, different, distinct. To say that God is holy means that God is alien from us. He's not like us. Isaiah 55, the prophet says this, giving us words from the Lord, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. The holiness of God is good. It is right, it is true, and it is also for us as creation terrifying. Because that which we do not understand is by nature to us unsettling. Ask any child, ask any spouse, and ask any therapist, and they will tell you that the key to a healthy relationship is consistency. Because when we feel in a place where we understand the nature of our relationship and the person that we are in relationship with, we feel at ease. Like we're not constantly getting ready to be caught off guard. But with the God who is holy, how in the world can we ever understand Him? How can we ever be in a place of ease before Him? The people of God, the children of God, Israel, faced this same dilemma when God freed them from bondage in Israel and was, or Egypt and was leading them into the promised land. There, there's a, a song by uh, an author, or by a songwriter named Chris Renzema, who I love, Brett loves. He has this song called, I Still Don't Know How to Be Yours. And it captures the sentiment of the people of God and certainly Israel in the midst of the wilderness so well. 
They knew how to be slaves. They knew how to be subjects. They didn't know how to be children of a holy God. They didn't know the true definitions of what power really was in God. What authority really was in God. What provision really was in God. What care really was in God. And so the Lord, in His grace, gave them what was quite honestly an exhausting amount of rules and boundaries and commands in order to try and usher them into a relationship between a sinful and broken humanity and a holy, other, perfect God. Many of us today continue to live as if the only way that we can know a holy God is through the law, its commands, and our fulfillment of them. But we are not like Israel who was unable to see God face to face. Do you remember the story of Moses? The most righteous of all of the Israelites, whose one request to the Lord was, I want to see your glory. And the Lord says, you cannot see me face to face or you will die. And so the best amongst us was able to be hidden in a crevice in a rock and he could see the shadow of the back of the Lord. I'm not sure there are any more qualifications that could have been given to Moses in that scenario where he would have seen anything of the Lord. He couldn't see him. But we are not like Moses in the Exodus. We are like Moses on the mountain of transfiguration where Moses stood face to face with Jesus as it was revealed to his disciples and all the earth. And Moses finally saw God face to face as he looked upon the glory of Jesus. This is how God reveals himself by the only language we know, humanity. He takes on human flesh in order that we might be able to say, I know you. An author I love, Paul Miller, he was on a sabbatical one time and he would wake up early and he would bike to this uh, hermitage that was not far from his house. That's a great word, by the way. Try and add that into your dinner conversation. Hermitage. Um. He would bike over there, and he he spent a prolonged season just reading through the Gospels. And he said as he was reading through the Gospels, he, he wasn't necessarily looking at the actions or miracles of Jesus. He wasn't necessarily dialed in specifically to the words of Jesus. He just wanted to see how Jesus interacted with humanity. And he said he was in awe as he would watch Jesus come face to face with the hurting, the broken, and sinners. How he would speak and interact with failures and those who didn't live up to expectations. 
And he said he walked away from that time, Paul Miller did, utterly changed. Rachel and I will oftentimes lean into those that we're counseling and tell them not to trust their gut feelings about how the Lord feels about them, how He reacts to them, how He interacts with them, especially in moments of shame or guilt. Instead, the encouragement is, don't don't think. Don't use your experience here on earth. Instead, cast your eyes on the one that is God in human flesh and see how He celebrates with humanity. How He comforts the broken. How He forgives the sinners. How He is near to the brokenhearted. We have peace because in Christ we have clarity about exactly who the Creator of the heavens and the earth truly is. But knowing God is not just to understand Him. It's also to be with Him. And Paul tells us that we don't just have clarity, but in Christ we also have companionship. If you were to use one word to sum up the story of humanity after the fall, you might use the word exile. After living in perfection, in the presence of God, humanity was in sin, cast out, unable to be with Him. And so the story goes, until the coming of Christ, the people of God, His creation, those made to be His image bearers, are exiled. That word literally means to be sent off to be disallowed in your native land. But the Hebrew word also means to be uncovered. To be naked. Not sent out with all the resources you need, but to be sent out, cast off, feeble, broken, without. David, the psalmist, the king of God's people, says in Psalm 31, I am cut off from before the eyes of the Lord. In Psalm 40, he says, I am poor and needy. In Psalm 38, he pleads with the Lord, do not abandon me. Do not be far from me. The story of humanity is the juxtaposition that we were created for intimacy and relationship with the Lord, and yet sin isolates. Sin exiles. Sin abandons. This truth feels like it comes home all the more during the holidays. It's the most Wonderful time of the year. I'm still waiting for my Mercedes with the big red bow in my driveway. Rachel. We're going to need to counsel some more people. The promise, and maybe it's not even the promise, but the insinuation of everything is 
you should be in this time more fulfilled, more joyous, more at peace, more everything right now than at any other time. And yet for a lot of us, the holidays can be the most lonely, the most sorrowful, the most stress-filled. But the longings that these seasons stir up, the feelings that are so hard for us to get our arms around, the desires that we have for intimacy and relationship and belonging and friendship is here with us in the coming of Jesus. See, when, when Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that word image, it, it means reflection. It, it means that he's not just like a, a picture of God or, or something that, that reminds us of God. It is literally the exact reflection of God. Now, what does a reflection require? It requires the substance. When you look into a still pond and you see your reflection, you see the reflection because you are there. So to say that Jesus is the reflection of the invisible God means that God in Christ is there. The author of Hebrews says it this way, He is the imprint the exact imprint of God. An imprint is only made by the substance being present. And so when we declare that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, what we say is God is here. He is with us. He has come to us. And so how does Jesus coming how does Jesus being with us, how does His companionship bring us peace? Several years ago, before my wife and I moved down here to southern Illinois, we lived in the Chicago suburbs, and our pastor at the time, him and his wife, adopted four children from Ghana and West Africa. And after they brought their four kiddos home, one of their kids specifically began to struggle. She was having trouble adjusting. But it wasn't trouble adjusting to living in America. It wasn't trouble adjusting living away from Africa. It wasn't a trouble adjusting to commercialism. And it wasn't even trouble adjusting to the frigid, frigid wasteland known as Chicago. She was having trouble adjusting to being a beloved child. She would, after meals, take food and go up to her bedroom and hide it in the closet for fear that she wouldn't get enough food next time. She would lie to them, make up stories about events that occurred at school that never occurred simply because she wanted her parents to be impressed, to like her, to praise her. And when there was sorrow or difficulty or trouble, she wouldn't run toward her parents, she would run away from them. She would isolate. 
and she would try and soothe and comfort herself. But the strange thing was, she had been anticipating this adoption for a year and a half. She was six to eight when she was adopted. Birth records are a funny thing in the way that they work in that country, at least. But they would do Zoom calls with her. They wrote her letters. They went over and visited her. She told everyone as far and wide as she possibly could how excited she was to finally come home and to live with her mom and dad, except for the fact that she had no clue how to actually be present with them. She had spent so much time on her own that she didn't know what it meant to be fully with them. Church, listen, it is one thing for us to sing and declare the benefits of Christ. It is one thing for us to read about who He is. It is one thing to speak about His place in our lives and even how our lives should be changed because of Him, but it is another thing entirely to practice the presence of Jesus in our lives. To live with Him in a way which reflects what is true, that He is here intimately. That there is not a moment that goes by in your day where He is not with you, where He is not thinking of you, where He is not ready to speak to you, where He is not longing to hear from you, where He is not providing for you, where He is not comforting you. Have you ever thought about what your moment-by-moment relationship with Jesus looks like? I was talking with a young man recently who is just struggling in his life with the idea of friendship. Feels like he, he really hasn't had deep friendship, doesn't really know what it looks like, longs for it and yet doesn't have it. And we began to talk about friendship with Jesus. The ultimate friendship that we have been offered as friends of God Himself. And, and He affirmed it and, and, and he, he said, yes, I know the Lord is my friend. I know that I have Him as my friend. And I, I paused Him and I said, do me a favor. Just close your eyes. And and just think of a a great gathering with a friend. And describe to me what that friendship would look like. And he used words like laughter and humor and and sharing interests. And and that a friend would lean in and would really care about him. And would, would comfort him if need be. Or if he was celebrating, he'd be right there. And they'd celebrate together. And they would they would. They wouldn't spend a lot of time apart. They would spend a lot of time together and they would do a lot of things together. And I simply paused him and I said, does that describe your relationship with Jesus? And he super authentically, and I loved him for it, simply said to me, how am I supposed to do those things with Jesus? And it's true. It feels foreign. 
It feels like it's hard to get our arms around. And yet, if we are, as a church, to affirm that He is here, then let's act like it. Not because you should. Not because you must. But because we get to. Share the joke with the Lord. Share your celebrations with the Lord. Complain to the Lord. I'm really good at complaining to my wife. And she so sweetly says to me all the time, baby, please go complain to the Lord. There's companionship that we desperately need. By the way, the reason our relationships, I think, are oftentimes crushed is because the companionship that the Lord desires for us to have with Him, we look everywhere else and to everyone else for. There's a, a term I hate called helicopter parents. You guys heard this term? And I don't hate it because I am one, because if you see my child running around in the street, I'm just going to ask you to please just grab him for me. Okay, we have five of them. We just try and keep our eye on three to four at a time. Okay, we're playing the odds. The Lord is sovereign, and I am very pleased about that. Okay, we, we are not helicopter parents, but I hate the term, and, and here's why. A helicopter parent, by definition, is the type of parent that is like always around their kid. Right? Trying to keep them safe, trying to ensure bad things don't happen, trying to ensure that they're safe, and, and all of these things. And, and people are like, listen, helicopter parents, you've got to let your kid, you gotta let your kid be. They've got, they got to be able to fail. They've got to be able, it's okay if they get hurt. And, 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 and that, dis, that discussion is all well and fine. But, but here, here's the gist of, of what they're saying about these helicopter parents. You need to prepare your child to one day no longer be a child of yours. That sounds like the definition of parenting that most of us are raised with, right? Here's the only problem with that. Our God is a helicopter God. And He is not preparing you for a day when He's not right there. He is not preparing you for a moment when you'll no longer need Him. Instead, He is preparing for you, moment by moment, the day when you will be intimately in His presence forevermore. You need more helicopter heavenly parenting in your life. Companionship with the Lord brings fulfillment, intimacy, joy, contentment, Peace. The incarnation of Jesus gives us clarity. It brings us the gift of companionship and also compassion. When we think of the word compassion, we think of care and concern and kindness. But the core of the word compassion means to suffer with someone. Co together, passion. Think of the passion of Christ, the suffering of Christ. True compassion is when you suffer with someone. 
Paul finishes verse 15 in Colossians 1 with this interesting phrase about Jesus. He is the firstborn of all creation. The phrase is is sometimes used incorrectly by Jehovah's Witnesses and others to claim that Jesus is a created person. But the word firstborn here and in the Hebrew, as often as it means the literally first to be born, oftentimes is used to talk about importance or preeminence. David in the Psalms is referred to as the firstborn king. But he was neither the firstborn in his family, nor was he the first king in Israel. But in preeminence, in importance, in esteem and honor, he was, at that point in time, the king of kings, the firstborn king. And likewise, Paul here calls Jesus the firstborn. But he calls him the firstborn of creation. Next week, we're going to talk about the preeminence of Jesus. What it means that he is above all. But this week, I want to zoom in on the end of the phrase that Paul uses, of all creation. That Jesus, the Messiah, God in human flesh, is in and over all of creation. Or another way to say it is, he has entered in, come down, lowered himself associated with broken, feeble, dying humanity. Rachel and I have done a few different house renovations. And the thing I hate most is tiling. It's the worst. If you are like, oh God, I love tiling. Will you just come and talk to me, please? (laughs) Not because you can convince me to love tiling, but because I can convince you to come do my bathroom projects. One of the things early on I learned, especially in tiling a shower, is the importance of everything being sealed up. And the person that was describing this talked to me about a single drop of water traveling down the tiles, seeking for any crack or crevice or low spot that it could enter into. And as it enters into that spot, it would then run further down the wall until it made its way to the subfloor where it would settle and rot. But that's the way that water tends to work. It runs always to the lowest spot. It seeks out the cracks and crevices, and goes lower and lower and lower, and as painful as that can be in my tiling adventures of a shower, far more beautiful does that same concept become when we see that our Savior has made His way Lower and lower, seeking out the spaces of brokenness in our life, the very cracks and crevices that we would love to cover up, but instead of avoiding them, He enters into them. But not to harm, but to heal. Not to bring pain, but to bring 
comfort and compassion. In Matthew 5, in the Beatitudes, Jesus opens His mouth and says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. In a show I love, The Chosen, this section was spoken as they were trying to depict the the, the life of Jesus and his followers, uh, the, the writers imagined how this introduction to the Sermon on the Mount could have been crafted and what the conversation might have been like. And in the, the story, Jesus says to Matthew, his scribe, I've come up with the introduction. It's a map. And then Jesus reads the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And Matthew says to Jesus at the end, but how is it a map? And Jesus says, because when people look for me, it is amongst these, these people, they will find me. We spend our lives trying to climb up ladders. Try and climb up the ladder of athletics and sports. We try and climb up the ladder of popularity to reach the next friend group. We try and climb the ladder of relationship again and again and again. We climb the ladder of career. And we daily try and climb the ladder up towards our holy God in heaven. But let me tell you something, even if out of all your discipline you could muster up even ascending a few rungs, you wouldn't find the Lord there. Because He has already gone down to the lowest places. He is with us in our suffering, in our sin in our brokenness, in our needs. But I didn't just call this gift condescension, though in my super Baptist powers that also would have worked in alliteration. It's compassion because he doesn't just make the trip down, but then he enters into the brokenness. He takes our suffering upon His shoulders. He takes our sin upon His shoulders. He takes our isolation upon His shoulders. He hurts with us. He suffers with us. He struggles with us. He is our ultimate compassion. And so you no longer need to search for Him 
Because wherever you are, He has come to you. Let me end here. Paul, in the beginnings of his letters, including here in the letter to the church in Colossae, begins routinely with a phrase, grace and peace to you. But he doesn't just begin the letters with grace and peace because grace and peace are two separate and yet good things that he desires for his readers. He offers to them the blessing of grace and peace because it is the formula of the Gospel. Grace leads to peace. And so this Advent, and every day, I pray that you would experience the gift and the beauty and the grace which is the incarnation of Jesus, which leads to true, unending peace. Pray with me.